Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. My guest today is Heather Matarazzo. Heather's a brilliant actor, an activist, a mental health warrior, and most importantly, a dear, dear friend. She and I both started our acting careers as children in very prominent productions and experienced a very different world than most of our peers did. And it's created some parallel successes and struggles in our lives. Heather's passion for equality and justice for everyone in America has been an inspiration to me, and I'm happy to be able to share our conversation with you. Enjoy. I'm Heather Matarazzo, and I'm fighting for comprehensive reform for how we deal with mental illness, especially PTSD. Sorry, not sorry. So we met, I mean, how do you describe how we met, Heather, without giving away all our secrets? Um, We met in the resistance. Yeah. I mean, I would say that we met in a collective. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Because there's that thing, right? Like what resists, uh, what resists persists and what you look at disappears. Right. Right. So I always have a bit of a cautious relationship with a word like resistance. Right. Well, and it's also... It's taken on its own life. It breathes its own life right now with everything that's going on. Yeah. And anytime I think you label something with a very specific term like resistance, you're almost doing it less service. Yes. Right? Yes, 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 yes. Really, we're just, we're fighting, we're fighting for goodness. I mean, just humanity and basic decency. It's not too much to ask for, is it? It is. It is right now, apparently. <laughs> I mean, because you look at you look at what Jesus said, you know. And I'm, I I have respect for all religions, and I'm not religious, but you know, Jesus said the greatest commandment I give unto you is to love one another. Right. And that is the hardest commandment, which is why it's the greatest. Mm-hmm. How am I going to love someone else if I don't even have the capacity to love self? Right. If I actually don't have any images that are going to be reflective of of nurturing and compassion and understanding and that grace, how am I going to extend that to my brother or sister? Mm-hmm. I think the thing that I was most struck about when I first met you was this vulnerability and absolute almost rawness that is so uncommon because I feel like when you first meet people, they've got all of the 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 walls up. Yeah. And when I met you, I felt this vulnerability and this openness hmm. to al- allow others to know of you. Yeah. And we don't exist without a certain amount of pain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that I could identify with that because I'm also very open about my yeah. own pain. Yeah. Because I think stigma is the worst possible thing that we put onto other people. 
Yeah, and I also think, you know, we, I think that we're in the bare bones beginning of of really getting to know each other and, and getting to have an intimate relationship, whatever that gets to be. But I was thinking the other day, you know, you also came up as like a kid actor. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, and I think there's something very unique within that, especially Getting to make the transition into becoming an adult. Mm-hmm. I've always been open. Right. You know, and I don't know if that muscle was exercised continuously because I was an actor or if that was just something that was always there whether I was acting or not. Do you know what I mean? Like I do. I think for me, I always felt exposed and open, but I don't know that I necessarily wasn't protecting myself with some kind of mechanism of, uh, yeah, I'm really open, but then not really being true to no, my I own. Know, I, I know exactly you know what, what I mean. Yes, I know exactly what you're saying, and I completely get that and agree. But maybe that's just growing older and being more confident in in who you are. Well, I was just having this conversation last night. Like, I wasn't allowed to have feelings in my house. Mm-hmm. I could only— Why? Because you were a girl, because— Because it just—that was just my household. I, it was it, it was a household where people did not have a lot of tools. And so I, I grew up with a parent who was an emotional hostage taker. Mm-hmm. So if anyone else had a feeling, right, she would make that— She would hijack it. Yeah, she would hijack and make it her own. And, and you know, it's like walking around— it, it's emotional landmines that you're walking around. So the Was only- that because of – was it your mom or your dad? My mom. Is that because of her past? Probably. Right. Probably. You don't think she had, like, some personality disorder where it was, like, you I mean, know, here's narcissism? A, I'm not – I don't have a, a doctorate in psychology or mm-hmm. whatever the fuck. You know, I don't know. It's it, it, There are so many different ways to look at it, right? And I know for me – at the end of the day, I think that there's a difference between ignoring one's past mm-hmm. and pretending it didn't happen versus marinating in it and getting to use it as a victim shield for why I why now I'm fucked up and why I now can like right. excuse behavior. Right. And getting Your to Your own behavior. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And getting to have that third way of, okay, this has clearly affected me. I'm going to allow myself to have feelings and emotions about it, and I'm going to recognize that I don't necessarily know how to have feelings when I'm not working. Yeah. Playing someone else. Right. And learning that having feelings are okay. My my start was in independent cinema, and for me, at the end of the day, it's always story. Can I connect with the story? Does it resonate with me? Does it challenge my beliefs? Do I feel that it's going to resonate with an audience? And that's how I make all of my decisions. Hi, John. We were just wondering, are you a lesbian? <laughs> Listen, there are pros and cons to being a princess. Shh, don't say that little. Okay, to be clear. Okay. The Princess Diaries. So I know that something's going on that you're not telling me. Friends tell. So you know what? Here is your friendship charm. I'm taking it off and it's going in the dark. Well, I think it rocks. And you know what? 
Voltaire hair. I would personally like to learn about Voltaire. Okay, Lily, okay. Gosh, this village is so enchanting. Laura, you have any germogasm right now? Actually, yes. Multiple ones. She stole prescription drugs and broke the law. Your Honor, if I may... You may not. Sir. This is your lucky day, Miss Dixon. I'm going to put you under house arrest. It's funny because I think acting has become less interesting to me the more I know who I am. Exactly, 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 exactly. I don't want to do that. I just figured out who I am. I don't want to play someone else. else. Like, I want to bask in me a little bit and marinate. Yeah. And and for me, I now am to this point where I love story. Right. Where for me, it's... Story is what connects us. It's it, we're the we're the architects of the heart. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can identify, you know, with a nine year old kid battling aliens on Mars. Right. But what I can identify with is the feeling of terror, is the feeling of loneliness, feelings. is the feeling of regret. I've always loved movies. Mm-hmm. Always, always, always. Um, you know, because movies always made me feel better. Right. In what way did they make you feel better? Because they made me feel, feel better. I used to, like, pretend people in the movies were my friend. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, this is... And then, until they became my friend. And then you were like, no, no, I like the illusion better. <laughs> um, Sometimes. I mean, I, I look at it now, and, and I'm, I'm grateful that I've, I've gotten to find the language. You know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we're storytellers, and we go to the movies to see ourselves. We don't go to see famous movie stars. It's mm-hmm. why we go to the movies. And... There is an energetic transference that happens where we identify with the feeling. Mm -hmm. So there's that silent conscious or unconscious, um, I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. I'm not alone. And that's why I I love film so much and, and I love getting to be a storyteller. You know, I like movies have saved my life in a lot of ways. Mm hmm. That is the universal language. Right. And that's where I know I get to have that gift. Right. And getting to see that, you know, the change of heart in what your work is having impact in other people's being. Yes? Well, I guess for me it's it's that I desire to alleviate others' pain and make living bearable. And getting to do that through through story, mm-hmm. getting to do that through film, getting to do that through just, yeah, being honest and authentic about the experience that I've gotten to have through life and, and getting to see how it is universal. You know, we've all had that heartbreak. We've all had that pain. We've all had that experience of not desiring to get out of bed. Yeah. You know, yeah, more empathy is needed. And for me, I'm just... I've been saying this, that I feel like empathy has gone away. You know, I was raised with that phrase, put yourself in their shoes. And I don't think we say that enough anymore. No, and for me, I'm like, but what happens when you got no shoes? Right. (laughs) It's a good point. Or if the shoe doesn't fit, like what what, What, what happens? It's. I think it's really fun. And there's a privilege within getting to sit back and have a philosophical discussion of 
up, 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 right. and you know, I think of the woman that's working three jobs that has a car that's on its last legs mm-hmm. and doesn't have time to think, period, mm-hmm. and is just going, 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 isn't given the luxury of getting to take a step back and think and contemplate. Right. You know, and yeah. we've gone away from the self. Well, because, it, I mean, for fuck's sakes, capitalism. Yeah. It's it, it's so much and— it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot. We 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 are working way too much for way too little, and it is soaking up our entire time, our being, and then what is left. I always go back to this really basic question, and it might sound really simplistic and idealistic, but what do you want to remember on your deathbed? Oh, my gosh. I'll tell you something. I think about death all the time. Mm -hmm. I was just having a conversation with a dear friend of mine yesterday, and I was saying, I don't want to die. Like, I I don't want to die, and I'm also terrified to live. Because the truth is, is I think most of us live under this false pretense and this lie that I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of death. We're the only... And maybe I'm wrong because, again, I haven't had, like, a full-on conversation with a dog or other mammal. (laughs) Like, they very well might know about death and have their own conversations when we're not there. Who the fuck knows? That's the whole entire point. (laughs) Um, It's that, you know, my birth mom died at 53. My birth dad died at 61. And— How old were you? I was— in my 20s when my birth mom died, and my birth dad died uh, 2015. Uh, three so months, you were adopted. Yeah, I was adopted. And then three months later, my adoptive dad died. And I'm, I'm very intimate with death. I've been intimate with death for quite a long time. What does that mean to you, being Meaning, intimate? Like, you know it's going to happen? No, you like, I've had a lot of people die. Yeah. I've had a lot of people die in my have life. Have you ever been in the room when someone's died? I have not been in the room as another person has died, a friend of mine who died of cancer about 15 years ago, I remember visiting him in the hospital room, and he was the most abnormal color I've ever seen in my mm-hmm. life. And I knew that it was going to be the last time that I saw him, and I also knew that he was going to probably die when everybody had left the room, and that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And I find that there are quite a few people that choose that way to go. They wait until no one's there. No one's there unless they're doing an assisted suicide. Right. In which case, which I'm a huge advocate of and always have been. I'm very pro-suicide in that way where it's choice, 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 choice. I don't stop at like women like having the right to an abortion. Mm-hmm. It's also for me choosing how one gets to die. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you know, depending. There's all this talk of, we can't play God. Right. Well, if that's the case, then why go to the doctor? Right. Why get surgery? Why do any of these things? Mm-hmm. Or why prolong a life? Yes, exactly. It's it, We take all these preventative measures mm-hmm. to ensure this safety, to ensure this life. And I feel like death has been trying to get our attention, right. <laughs> especially in this country, because we don't value life. We value the dollar. Right. I think if we could ever conquer death, so many of our social institutions would change dramatically. But until we conquer death, 
what we need to do is conquer suffering. So I look at these obituaries and I read where a lot of them say, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so, won't mention any names, read one this morning, died after a courageous battle with fill in your own disease. And there are so many out there. And I keep thinking, look at those courageous battles. And they, and they are not taking anything away from somebody that wants to face it head on, their disease, and try to conquer it. But what happens if somebody says, I don't want the suffering. I can't take the suffering anymore. I want to end my life now as painlessly, voluntarily, do not take anybody with me. In Europe, there are three countries, I think Luxembourg, uh, the Netherlands, and Belgium, that have the right to die. Assisted suicide, euthanasia. We value the the dollar at the end of the day, and us as quote unquote these human beings are the means to that end. And it's really just our country that I know that's really into it. I know, I know, really into it. We are really into work, 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 work. Because we have to survive. Well, it's a circus, right? It's, it's a circus. And it's cyclical, <laughs> right? It's a cyclical circus because you can't – we are not giving opportunity to communities of low income to come out of a low income type well, of, of situation. Not. Slavery so, is alive and well. That's right. Slavery is alive and well. And I wanted to, like, pull this up because I I think it's, it's one of my favorite quotes and – I I think it just pretty much says everything about this country. And I'm not I'm not a fan of this country, but I I would like it to change, which is why I'm staying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you don't like it, leave. Yeah. Are you gonna pay? Are you gonna pay for the lawyer for me to get like access to a new country no, with which I can live even, and all this shit? They don't shit. even pay for lawyers for for asylum seekers in this country. It's it's so it's it's so disgusting. And and also at the same time here's the truth, right? If none of this was going on and everything was love and great and da da da, what would we have to fight for slash live for? And it goes back to your question that you posed, what keeps us going? Why right. are we here? If everything was lovely, I don't know if we'd be able to. But you've read those reports about how, you know, there's a certain lifestyle in in Scandinavian countries that, you know, promotes yes. family and, and yes. communal living yes. And, yes. And, yes. and education. Yes. Yes. And yes. They seem pretty happy. And I guess, yes, that is very, very And true. that wouldn't take away personal struggle because I think people – personally, we'll always struggle, yeah. right? We always will be our own worst enemy. <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm, I'm catching wind of my own bullshit as we speak right this second. <laughs> in, in, in this regard, just the arrogance that, that I feel as though there's more work to be done and I'm going to... Yeah, I'm going to fix it I'm all. I'm going to help yeah. bring it about. Right. Um, because that gives me a sense of power and a sense of control that at least I'm doing something right. about it. I think that there's a certain element of who we are 
that wants to make things better, that is always going to strive for more. I mean, I think that's that's the, well, know, it's the, the law fear. of migration is that people migrate to give themselves and their loved ones better lives. And that's just – we're always going to have that innate want for betterment. Yes, and I, I guess that's the – it goes to – well, we only have this much, so we can't give it to you. Like, you're on your own. Right. And – we, as Westerners, are very – we're touted as individualists. It's all about the individual. It is not about the community. It is not about the pack. I won't use the word tribe. And I, I call it a pack. And we're so isolated, especially in this country. And we get all of our connection from social media, but we're continually isolated. Mm-hmm. And it's – I'm going to take care of me and mine. And I found myself saying that as well, where it's... By the way, uh, yeah. the perfect example of this yeah. is we are the only country that promotes laying a newborn baby in a crib to sleep on their own and expected to sleep away from their mother. <laughs> I mean, but here's the deal. Yeah. who? Th- why do we do that? Because someone realized... There was actually money to be made in teaching your child how to sleep on their own. So they started this whole movement of sleep training and making babies cry it out. We're imprinted to be isolationists from that point. From the get-go. I mean, I cried it out. My kids have not cried it out, but I cried it out as a child. So for me, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is comfortable. Being alone is comfortable. It's the intimacy of relationship that is uncomfortable. Oh, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. A, it's interesting because I was literally just talking about this yesterday Mm -hmm. because I I quit smoking 19 days ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Mm -hmm. After smoking for 25 years. Mm -hmm. I started smoking when I was 11. Very hard thing to do. Holy fuck balls. Mm Especially because when I'm happy, I smoke. When I'm sad, I smoke. Yeah, it becomes when I'm worried, like a friend, right? It, and it's not even – it's it was self-soothing. Right, of course. It was – Well, it's celebratory. It's when you're angry. It's when it, – it's, it's not only soothing. It's everything. Yes, but it, it's the most intimate part of me. I needed a cigarette at 11. Mm. And I don't know a lot of 11-year-olds that need cigarettes. <laughs> so why did you need a cigarette at 11? Because I needed to breathe and I didn't know how. Because again, it it literally was um, wasn't allowed to cry in my house. wasn't allowed to show any emotion. That it was literally just about getting to behave and act in a way that would keep the household calm. So, do you think your openness and your vulnerability that you project is actually a rebellion to your upbringing and having to be so closed off? Do you think that you're no, making up for lost time? Do you think that I you're think, overcompensating for some sort of conditioning that you've had when you were little? I'm like, <laughs> whoa. Maybe over, all of it? No. You know, I'll, I'll be incredibly, incredibly honest. I wouldn't expect anything less <laughs> from you. I received that. You know, I was put into foster care when I was two. I was adopted when I was five. And... Those first two years of my life are a bit of a mystery. I've I've never gotten the facts of it. And I know that the first two years of life is, there's some development that happens. I was found in a locked closet eating peanut butter off a wall. Social services found me in a locked closet eating peanut butter off a wall. Why was there peanut butter on the wall? That's, I, I don't know. 
and I was placed in a foster care and the foster family that became my adoptive family. And they originally thought that I was autistic because I didn't make a single facial expression mm. and I didn't speak. And I would walk into walls, <laughs> probably right. from all my time in the closet. In the closet. <laughs> Literally and then figuratively. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, like what Carrie Fisher says, there is that quote, and I'm totally going to fucking botch it up. But um, if my life wasn't funny, it would just be true and that's unacceptable. I'm Heather Matarazzo, and I was asked to share a few words about my experience for the My Younger Self campaign. When I was younger, I suffered through incredible depression and suicidal ideation. I never thought it would get better, for lack of a better term. I know that term is so cliche. And what I would say to my younger self is... A, you made it, yay! B, you're very brave. You're very, very brave. And I wouldn't change a thing on your path because you're gonna act, end up where I am, and I love where I am. I'll also say though that the threat and the fear of the pain is always much worse than the actual pain itself. And that's what I'm coming to find. And also, I am sending you a really big hug and a really big kiss. I love you, younger self. I, I fought in the ways that I could for as long as I could. When did you start to become aware of all this? Oh, gosh. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't really know. It's, it's, it's hard to have that pinpoint. I I just know for me, I always had a desire to know God, spirit, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And I always felt incredibly alone, except when I was working. And I remember I would, as a, I was raised Roman Catholic, so aka filled with guilt and shame. Um, <laughs> I know it well. <laughs> I know it well. And I remember I would pray to God and and. and I would say like that I would say the Hail Mary again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Like that was my another way of self-soothing, mm -hmm. you know, and what I saw was that and what I'd been raised to believe is that God will answer your prayers if you're good. And if you're not good, you're not going to get your prayers answered. So you better be good. Mm -hmm. And around that time. Isn't that the point of all religion, though? I don't I don't know if that's the case because I think of Buddhism. You know, I, I, I But it's still I mean Buddhism's not really a religion, right? It's more of a philosophy, but it's it is like we should all emulate this idea of goodness and you know, in Buddha's likeness. I mean the, again, I don't know. Buddhism doesn't have God attached to it. Right. And there's not a fear based Right fall in line. Yeah. Because you might be getting sent somewhere. Right. And yeah, it's more of a, if you do good, you feel good. Yeah, philosophy. and also just that's the number one where it's like suffering. Yeah. Like, you got to get used to the suffering. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of, I had spent a long time trying to get out of my suffering. Right. And within that, 
having to then recognize what that suffering actually was and getting to have enough distance. The only thing I know is that I don't know much and I really desire to live. Right. And I and mean, we do all these things to try to live longer. And that's the thing. I've just gotten into moisturizing my face. <laughs> it looks fabulous. Thanks. I, I received that. <laughs> and like Nora Ephron's book taught me that I need to really moisturize my neck. <laughs> Because that oh, is yeah. a part of my face. Yes. Because she has that book, I Feel Bad About My Neck. <laughs> and she's like, I wish somebody had told me in my 20s uh-huh. and 30s to moisturize. Yep. My path of what it is to live longer is not, I mean, literally, we're like, are you hungry? Do you want food? What do you want? Do you want a salad? It was the first thing you said. Or a sandwich. And I'm like, oh, like a pizza. <laughs> you were like, like a I burger. Want pizza. Like whatever. <laughs> like I don't care. And like a Coke. It's fine, man. Um, Which is probably the easiest thing to bring you is pizza. And and with that too, you know, I've never met a vegetable that I liked. Really? And within that, also getting to see that vegetables need to be eaten. Yes. And 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 profoundly important. Within that, too, not beating myself up over the fact that I haven't, which is very easy for me to do. I'm either the authoritarian to my inner kid right. or I'm permissive patty and <laughs> let them get away with everything and anything. And I have a very long history of depression. And I have a history of suicidal ideation. And... It's something that I've talked about before, and it's not something that, like, I I normally go into great detail with. But I I do feel that it's important because I feel like it goes to everything that we are discussing, right? It was never a thing that I wanted to die. I just—the pain was too unbearable. Mm -hmm. It just was, I can't do this anymore. And it would be easier for me and easier for everyone else— because I already felt like a burden and like I was taking up space. And I was sucking the oxygen out of the room. But also, did you feel that maybe you didn't belong anywhere because of No. Your it's no, 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 no. No. I just and it goes back to the praying and it goes back to the prayer and it goes back to desiring from the time I was a wee kid to have a relationship with God, spirit, whatever you want to call it, and feeling so incredibly alone. And then starting to recognize the, like, budding desires that I had and the attraction that I had towards women. Which happened at what age? Like, seven, eight. I remember, like, I remember my first crush, you know. And it was never expressly talked about. And when I was seven or eight years old, keep in mind that the AIDS crisis was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, Reagan was being a, such a fuck nugget. And... <laughs> Reagan the fuck nugget. <laughs> and millions of, of gay people were dying and 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 hearing the things of gay cancer and, you know, the use of the F word. And did you know at seven or eight that that was a, a perceived yes. problem? Yes. We had foster kids coming in and out of our house even after I was adopted. And we had gotten this baby who I still think about often. And her mother was HIV positive, and they didn't know whether the child was going to be. And we brought that baby into the home. And I remember my mom having to use gloves to change diapers because people still didn't know. They thought that you could still get it from a bathroom seat. Yep. I'm sure people still remember, think that. I remember that's why I'm an activist to this day. Yeah. I remember and, it well. 
you know, so I don't know how conscious it was, but I remember just knowing that being gay was wrong, being gay was wrong. And I didn't, I didn't have a word for what I was, but I knew there was something that wasn't right about it. Like there was, I knew I couldn't say anything to anybody about it. Did it feel like a secret or did it, did you shut it off enough that it didn't oh, it felt exist? Like a, it felt like a secret and it felt like there was like a tremendous amount of shame. And I also have sex trauma in my, in my upbringing and whatnot. Things concerning sex and intimacy and all of that stuff was very, very fucked up and backwards for me. Got it. And that's not why I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> like, and maybe it is. Who the fuck knows? And it doesn't matter. It doesn't I'm married matter. to totally. the most incredible being in, in the world and, like, whatevs. And she's a woman. So, like, whatever the fuck. So that was seven. So, so that was seven. attraction to a little girl at seven. And you thought it was bad. You thought— I just, this is not I knew, right. I knew it wasn't, I knew it wasn't because A, there's no representation. Right. I don't see anyone else like me talking about it. So did it, you think da, it was da, da. bad or that yes. it wasn't right? Okay. So yes. it was definitely. Oh, yes. Not that you didn't know or you couldn't figure no, it out. I you just, thought, I knew, you were convinced. Yes. This is a bad feeling and I'm a and, bad person. And I'm sure it also had to do with, you know, the church every Sunday. Do like, you believe in God now? <sighs> I believe in us. I believe in life. I I believe in that's it. That to me, if you have to put a word, I don't know what God is. I don't know. I know that there is something that is so incredibly big, and I know that we are a part of that. Are you anti-religion? I'm anti-fearmongering. And within that, too, this is where I know that I, I I can be such an incredible fucking pain in the ass, but I'm decisive exactly when I need to be. Mm-hmm. But I I look at, I went through a period of my late teens where I was like a born-again Christian because I was so desperate to find that thing, to just find that thing. What, to do, to fill a void, to what, to find that thing, to find well, what that thing is, like well, what you thought it was. I'm going to share. Okay, you do it. <laughs> um, I just wanted to go home. That, that, that's always been it. The connection that I desire to have with this old white man in the sky that I found out was a Republican and had a beard, you know, when I was a little kid and I'm living in chaos, like absolute insane chaos, you know, and feeling that the, because my prayers weren't answered, that automatically meant that I was bad. And the reason that I am bad is probably because I like girls. And you were able to connect those dots. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Oh, for sure. Of course. Because if you're indoctrinated with the with the thing of, if you're good, good things will happen. If you're good, God will right. like love you and take care of you. And I'm coming from an experience where my birth mom doesn't want me. I'm coming into a fucking house that is absolutely insane. And I already feel alone. I'm not allowed to talk about my adoption. I'm not allowed to talk about feelings. What like I'm not allowed to have those feelings. I'm not allowed to have any feeling that is going to upset the status quo of my household. And so I would go to God and I would pray. Nothing was changing. Like the violence was still occurring physically and emotionally and otherwise. So it's... 
And you took that as being your prayers were not being answered because you I took that as a sign that I was not good. There was inherently something wrong with me. And this is where I, I can get very infuriated with people that will talk about two adoptees. And, well, you're so lucky because you were chosen. You're so, yeah, but first you have to be not chosen. Right. You have to be actively abandoned, abandoned and rejected. Right. You know, like, so of course I got into this business and became an actor. Because <laughs> I'm a sadist. <laughs> because we're like the, the traveling circus. Yeah, exactly. Where yeah. it's like, please make me feel like shit until, like, you don't. Right. Because and allow me to be a part of a fake family yes. that you'll never talk to again when something wraps. Well, because which, that's where my abandonment issues come from. Ooh. I started working so young yeah. and we'd be so close and, and be so you know, incredibly like a family, and then all of a sudden the show would end and you never talk yes, to them again. Yes, yes, yes. And that makes me think this. This does all come full circle and, like, we're just going to get so fucking meta up in here. <sighs> sorry, not sorry. Exactly. And, you know, so I wanted to fix that part of me that always desired to die and go home because I knew that I wasn't finding what I needed here. In order to live and 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 not feel miserable every single day. You may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Just cause I walk as if I have oil wells pumping in my living room, just like suns and like moons, with the certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still I rise. You seem so self-reflective, and I'm wondering if that was like a distinct choice you had to make to be able to survive where you had to unpack all this shit? Well, yeah, because I or didn't want to die. who you are? I didn't want to die because that's the thing. It, it, and that's what I feel like a lot of people don't recognize and understand about suicide. And this is where I, I, I also get to see that and not in a hippy-dippy whatever kind of way. There is more to this thing called life that we give credit for mm -hmm. because we're 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 not even open enough to see and be compassionate just we're so limited in our fucking perspective mm -hmm. and i remember specifically i was going to therapy and at the time when I, did you start therapy by the way i <laughs> it's a good question though no, right it's a, it's because, a great question yeah. i'll tell you so i was a teenager i had had a bad cutting problem Cutting is something I could understand as far as I was going to ask you when you said you had so much pain that that you understood suicide because I understand. I, I've never cut, but I understand through my own mental illness, I have anxiety disorder, yeah. that idea of trying to stop what the you're mind. feeling yes. with something physical yes. Yes. and halting it. Yes. So I totally yes. get that. So you cut. I had a cutting problem that was quite significant and... I'd, I still have the scars on my legs. Luckily, I don't have the scars on my wrists anymore. And I'd gotten caught, and I would ended up having to go to this therapist. And <laughs> this therapist met my parents, and then 
you know, called me in separately and was like, you only have to survive four more years. Mm. And it was the first time that I felt safe enough to talk with a stranger and not feel as though my confidence was going to be betrayed. Mm. And and that, I think, is very important for every single young person to have is like a, a safe space with which to talk freely and openly mm-hmm. and know that that is going to be a sacred space and mm-hmm. those sacred words are being spoken and no, nothing's going to be broken. Mm. And so I was just starting to get into like my birth mom and all this stuff. And then I, I, I go do a movie for two months. <laughs> How old are we at this point? Like 14. Yeah. Go to do a movie for two months, like 14, 15. And I come back and he's dead. <gasps> come on. <laughs> and my joke has always been right when I was getting to the heart of my abandonment issues. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So like, wow. I was like, so okay. So you opened yourself up. You were and like, then I'm going to tell. He, he drops the fuck dead. Ugh. He dies. And like the time I'm shooting a movie. And... Uh, and that to me is is life's irony. Right. You know, so when I had the experience, I remember so distinctly, you know, I I'd gotten I'd gotten sober when I was 22 and I was sober for 11 years. And it it, it was very helpful and and whatnot for for what it was. AA was my life. Right. And the particular AA thing that I was a part of at the time was incredibly unhealthy for a lot of reasons. And here's the thing, okay? For AA is very helpful for some people. And it was very helpful for me for a time and it ended up, I outgrew it. But it was very anti-medication, anti-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Right. You know, just, it'll get better. It'll get better. It'll get better. Mm-hmm. Stop being selfish. Stop being self-centered. Like, go help someone else where it's like, I literally want to die right now. Right. I want to die. And I feel like, I, okay, yeah, sure. I'll help someone else. I'll help someone else. So and it's constantly deflecting. Yes. Yes. It's, and it's the same thing that I grew up with. So it was comfortable. Right. But also don't have probably your a family, right? Because it was consistency and there were other members and you had your sponsor who was. Yeah, it was, it, it, it was this. It fulfilled the, I'm being a good girl. It fulfilled that thing of, other people are, I'm seeing that they're happy because of what I'm doing, so I'm going to keep doing this. Film uh, without giving it all away, it's, it's just heartbreaking. You, you, you know, you break people's heart because you're just a, a sweet young girl trying to get through life, and it's yeah. difficult, isn't it? Yeah. How is your actual life? How old a person um, are you? I'm 13 years old. 13 years old. Yes. You go to school. I go to school. Uh huh. How are you doing in school? How am I doing in school? I'm doing okay. You know, I've gotten in trouble a couple of times. What kind of things get you in trouble? Well, um, well, when Smoking, I smoking, drinking, chasing yeah, boys. I'm doing all of the above. No, um. What happened between that first attraction and 14 years old as far as your sexuality? Oh, geez, Louise. Because 14 is when you start humping I, things. 
Fourteen's about that age where you're like, okay, I'm ready oh, to, I'm ready to to try. Oh to, God, okay. So to acknowledge I'll, that this. I'll, well, I'll say feeling this. is something. I'll say this: the first girl I ever kissed, I was eleven. Oh wow! So you were young in my bedroom. Justify my love was playing by Madonna. Of course, it was such a Scorpio. <laughs> and, you know, it was hot as fuck. Um, it was awesome, and I also, you know, was with quite a few dudes as well. Mm-hmm. You know, because I just did. You feel horrible after? I mean, here's you're the, eleven years old when I kissed the chick. Yeah. Oh my God, no. No, you've, you've, it was amazing because okay. it was like this feels too good to be. This wrong. is amazing, and I remember making that. Uh, it correlated with quite a few things. I did welcome to the dollhouse when I was eleven, and that was like my first feature. And I met a PA on that film who was gay, and I finally had like the full encompass of oh shit, I am gay. Mm. I am a lesbian. You know, like fucking like Ann Sullivan. It has a name. It has a name. <laughs> um, and and there was such a freedom in that of like, I'm a lesbian. I'm a lesbian. Right. And and with that too, I was going to religious education classes, as one has to do when they're fucking Catholic in Long Island. And I remember Mrs. Murphy was a teacher, and Mrs. Murphy was a nun. And she had said that God brought AIDS to Earth to get rid of all the gay people. And I just had an experience all summer with a bunch of gay people Mm. and realizing that I am, in fact, gay. And I remember hearing that and, like, I wanted her to die. Mm. (laughs) I wanted her to die. It made me so angry. Well, that's, I think, a more natural and a year later, and wanting yourself to die. Yeah, and a year later, she did die. I'm uh, sure it's not your fault. There, but there was a part of me that thought of it course. was my fault because <laughs> I am selfish. I'm just kidding. And so after that, like, I made the choice that if I had to make a choice between having a relationship with God and Jesus and all that stuff and being a lesbian, I'm going to be a lesbian because if like I'm going to hell, I'm going to hell. That's it. Because there's nothing I can do about this. And there's nothing that I really want to do about this. You know, I don't have a sheet prepared, and I'm just going to go for my heart. I've been alive 26 years. I never imagined that I would get to be a part of something so amazing and so brilliant. Standing here today, I'm so grateful not only that I get to be an out proud lesbian, but I get to be an American citizen. This is not about equality in New York State or California. This is about asking the government for federal rights, for equal rights for all. When we elected officials into office and we voted them in, we expected them to uphold the Constitution and not the Bible.
I really do believe at the end of the day, we make decisions based on fear, based on love. That's it. That's it. And everything else that comes from that. Did you come out right away to the people in your life? Oh, my God, no. Oh, my God, are you? No, absolutely not. So you must have still thought that there was something. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. Because I tried to come out to my mom when I was 12. And it was like I right before I was running away from home. I was like, I'm a lesbian. Why do you think I like Ellen and Xena Warrior Princess? (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing. And And what'd she say? I literally remember running out the door, and I was running so fast, and I was running to my friend Jamie's house. And I remember tripping over my feet and falling and, like, just getting gravel in my hands, and it's stinging and not really giving a shit. And... There's so much going on. You know, it wasn't just one thing. There were so many factors and and whatnot. And I didn't come out publicly until I was like 21, 20, 21, doing, during Princess Diaries 2. <laughs> like nothing better than coming out on Disney's dime. <laughs> Disney just had a, had a kid come out on their – I know. The Disney channel. I know. About time. It's great. It's amazing. And and the thing is, is that I was the youngest person, like the youngest well-known actor to come out that was a woman, you know, like Ellen Page. But there is like that small egoic part of me that wishes that I had had the same experience that Ellen Page had or some other people that have come out later. You know, I came out at a time where it was still like, girl, you just sunk your career Right. You just ruined it. You ruined it. You ruined your career. So what did you hear about from business people? Oh, my God. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it. So do was it. it discussed? Did you discuss it before you did it? Like, did your agent know that so, you were a lesbian? So here's the deal. Yes. And I I was at that time in my life very irresponsibly free. And I thought I had, like— chucked off the the chains of of limitation and aggression and all of that shit from my childhood and I could just right. no one can tell me nothing right unless I I had a tremendous amount of respect for you and and whatnot and I wanted you to like me and yes I'll do anything that you say because I I value this relationship mm-hmm. And don't think much of myself, mm-hmm. truly, at the end of the day. It was a lot of peacocking. And I had a publicist tell me specifically not to come out, and she was a lesbian as well. Interesting. Much older lesbian. Mm-hmm. like, And she repped really huge, massive people. And I just didn't understand why, because I also felt like it's not like I was Brooke Shields. Mm-hmm. And I say this as as a statement of fact, like we're talking about toilet paper. You know, where my trajectory in this industry wasn't based on my looks. It was based on my talent. And and so it wasn't like, you're going to lose all of your fans because they think that you're this beautiful straight woman. they all want to fuck you. Yeah, exactly. Right. I was already deemed unfuckable. You know, I think you're very fuckable. I receive that as do I. <laughs> I. I receive that very much, and I say thank you. And it, and at the time, I didn't feel that way. 
at all. And I was fighting against that because I was coming from playing this like awkward fucking girl, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't have a conventionally pretty face, which is why I do so well in the UK. So there wasn't, there wasn't a good enough reason for me not to do it, Mm. except people just said that I wouldn't work anymore. So did you have a moment where you're like, you know what, I'm going to hide this because my career is that important to me? Well, yeah, I mean, there's like, there's photos of me online, like, with like dudes on the red carpet and shit. And like, I, I tried to play the game to the best of my ability, you know, where like. Have you ever been attracted to men? I was attracted to the power that men had Mm. and the power that I felt when I was with a guy because I knew being with a guy like allowed me a freedom that I didn't otherwise necessarily feel entitled to where being with a guy allowed me to be in my power in a way that was very primal, that was very sexual, that was very raw. And I never fucked a dude. It wasn't like a, it was never a sexual attraction. It was always, there was like an emotive connection. And also it was a facade. There was this kid, this guy that I knew really was into me. And at the time I was trying to make my, and this is high school, my ex-girlfriend jealous. Mm. I used men a lot in that sense. I didn't use them for— I think straight women do that too. Yeah, but it it comes down to because I don't otherwise know how to be in my power in this way because I I was never allowed to be in my power. And it also—there was that justification of like, you see, I can do this. I can do this. And like, but this isn't really what I want. Power is a funny thing in terms of of what it can elicit— within oneself. And because the guys that I did have sexual relations with, <laughs> such a bad Clinton impression. <laughs> anyway, I, um, I appreciate that. No, I get it. Because yeah. there's also there's also like this element of that I talk to that I talk about when I when I speak about me too of redefining relationships with men that I have a hard time because the the what masculinity has meant yeah. throughout time yeah. is a basic position of power. Yes. So for me to be able to relate to men in a in an equal place, equal setting that doesn't have anything to do with sex or sexuality mm-hmm, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. difficult. And I know mm-hmm. that in my life mm-hmm. that there's a certain element of my sexuality yes. that I've been able to fall back on and use yeah. Yeah. to my yeah. own benefit. Yes. yes, yes, And I think while we're having these conversations of yeah. me too, yeah. we also have to look at how we've played in to the sexual identity and the well, gender inequality mm-hmm. and how we have not fought to come out of that in any way. And my thing, yeah, I'm wondering yeah, yeah, yeah. how different it feels to be in a relationship with a woman if there is still that dynamic of power, if someone in that in that relationship... I mean, here's the, here's the truth, like gay, straight, whatever the fuck... As I get older, getting to see that sexuality is indeed fluid and that there's a lot that goes into one's sexuality and sensuality. And I can have sex with somebody and not have it be an intimate experience. Mm-hmm. 
this is the first time in my existence that I'm in a committed relationship where I am experiencing emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, and physical intimacy. There's no game being played. There's no power dynamics. Power. And here's the thing. It's the first time in my existence that I feel safe enough to feel unsafe. I love you said that in your in your speech when you accepted what award did you accept with the uh, Human Rights Council? Human a, Rights Campaign. Campaign, yeah. But you said the most amazing thing, yeah. which was it's the you're being with your partner is the first time yeah. you felt safe enough to feel unsafe. To feel unsafe. Yeah. To learn self. To learn self in a way where I where where the threat of emotional or physical violence isn't there. I've made several life-changing decisions in the past two years that have impacted me in ways that are irreversible. The biggest impact and change has been thanks in part to a person, a person named Heather Terman. Heather had written and produced a comedy I started called Stuck back in 2016. It was the first movie I had started in over 15 years, and it was the first movie where I was going to be seen as a woman who was sexual, who was sensual, and not just awkward and strange. The overall premise of Stuck is about a young woman who has a good heart, but who's unwilling to accept responsibility for her actions. She disregards the rules that she finds stupid, and for good reason. Some of them are very stupid. (laughs) However, it's her arrogance and fear which cause her the most trouble, and it's only when she's willing to accept responsibility for her fuck-ups, her mistakes, and her own innate sense of unworthiness that she's able to grow. Part of that came from having someone truly see her and hold her in love. And that is what Heather Terman has done and continues to do for me. Who was the hardest person you had to come out to? Is there one person where you're like, oh, I'm fucking dreading this. I don't want to tell this person. No, there wasn't like a single person that... When I came out, it was at the end of a long press junket weekend, and you know how those go. Yeah. Like, to, you literally are talking to hundreds of people. Yeah. I don't think that that the, the quote unquote normal society understands what that's like. Where you're and you're answering the, the same, same fucking questions, and you forget what you told to this person versus this person, and it, it it was just a lot of so. Do you have a prince charming? So do you have a prince charming? So do you have a prince charming? No, I don't have a prince charming. No, I don't have a prince charming. No, I don't have a prince charming. And it was the last fucking interview, and I remember it was my in my hotel room. It was like four thirty in the afternoon. I'm exhausted. I'm on my second margarita. They were like, so do you have a Prince Charming? And I was like, no, but I have a Princess Charming. Awesome. Boom. And so... (laughs) Do you remember what outlet that was? I think it was the Daily News. Amazing. It was from geek to oh my goodness was the headline. Mm. And they reached out for a comment from Gary Marshall, who who directed it. And Gary, I'm going to use the word is because I'm like, I just won't say was. He said... He's he's a lovely, beautiful being. And I know that he was not too happy that one of the stars of his movie Mm. had just come out 
publicly without talking about it with anyone. And that's the thing where it's like, I didn't make a conscious choice to be like, I'm going to come out today. Right. I just was being a fucking smart ass. That was honest. I don't want to answer this fucking question anymore because it felt so invasive and it felt so minimizing and and I felt so gross. Say you were a lesbian in in, in Alabama, right? And yes, it's ma'am. such a small community yes. of those that are brave enough to be their true selves. Do you think you would have you would have had more support than than this this community that touts itself as being diverse and inclusive? Well, here's the thing, right? And I do want to mention something that just happened today that I think is really, really important. And I want to put them in blast. My wife, I can't even say fiance anymore, my wife. Mm. <sighs> my wife, I love my wife. Anyway, um, thank you. She had said today, a longtime friend, practically family, and her love, a volunteer firefighter for the Crystal Fire Department in St. Mary's, Pennsylvania, posted this photo a few days ago. And it's a photo of her and her love kissing. Someone from the department felt the photo was offensive, and she was subsequently asked to remove it. And then she ended up getting suspended for a week for just posting this photo, posting a photo of them kissing. And that is still happening. You know, like trans people are are being trans, like especially like black trans women are being murdered at like a disproportionate rate. And so the thing that that I really appreciated and was blown away by was the people that were from Alabama, were fr- were from Iowa, were from places where they weren't out yet, that where they were like, thank you so much. Mm. Like, I gave, by me being a fucking smartass at the end of a press junket and coming out, I subsequently gave other people hope. Right. And I... I started working with uh, Harvey Milk High School and the Hedrick Martin Institute, you know, where it was, it became more important to me to utilize the voice that I'd been given, to utilize the platform that, that I had been given, regardless of uh, if I was being supported by other people in the community, in the industry. I think the most beautiful thing is leadership through service. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you could be a leader within your community through yeah. service. Yeah. Let's talk about the the politics of being a lesbian right now. <laughs> okay. Okay. I don't know. I don't. Well, I mean, I think it's very political now. Or the politics of being. I mean, just the Period. fact that that picture mm-hmm. that you just showed me mm-hmm. got someone suspended. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. I'm going to be so completely honest with you. I don't really give a fuck anymore about the politics of anything. Breathing is a political act. Staying alive is a political act. Staying alive and being genuinely happy and having a fucking smile on your face. And that's the thing, is that I actively fight for my life on a daily basis. And by fighting for my life, I am letting myself know and like the deepest level that my life is worthwhile. And because I know that my life is worthwhile, I also know that yours is. You might not know that in the same way, but here's the thing. I'm not going to let you fuck with my shit. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let you fuck with my path. 
And it's like, threaten me, like, threaten me with a good time, please. Mm -hmm. Please. Because I'm willing to fight for it. Right. Because it's taken me so long. What can I say at the end of the day? I love humanity. Humans on an individual level can definitely irritate me, but I really do love us as humans. And to that greater extent, I love life. And I feel that one of the biggest gifts that I've been able to receive is getting to feel safe in giving life permission to break my heart wide open again and again and again. And I hope that I can greet death in the same way that I greet life, with a defiant joy and an open heart and the willingness to let it continually break. Every day starts with the revolutionary act of getting out of bed. We forget sometimes the difficulty inherent in that one single decision. The struggle is real, and not everything is political. The politics compounds it, though. We go to make coffee, and we find out that we're out of filters, standing in our bathrobes in front of last night's dishes. One of the kids is puking, and the other needs to be at school in 10 minutes. And then on NPR, Steve Inskeep is somehow reading the latest Trump tweet, trying his best to emote the misspellings and aggressive exclamation points. This makes us remember the warmth of our blankets, the meetings we don't want to have later in the day, the aches in our aging knees, or the monotony of a job we have instead of the job that we actually want. And bed calls us back, a siren song beckoning us to just give up on the day. It's easy to forget in this time of great national strife, of international struggle, of big things happening, that the small things continue their relentless assault on our day-to-day. That sometimes the act of courage is just facing the long two-line at the coffee shop on our way to a Monday morning staff meeting. And then there are those of us for whom getting through the day every day is harder than it should be for anyone. My friend Adi Barkin, whose voice has now been taken by ALS, of the single mother whose debit card won't go through when she goes to replace those missing coffee filters, of the people like me who struggle with mental illness, of each of you with your own individual challenges. It just, it makes me wonder why we all do it. What drives us to make the courageous act of facing what it is we face each and every day? Is it because we have no other choice? Is it hoping for something unexpected that changes our fortunes? Is it the irresistible force of evolution pulling us forward? Or is it the burning human need for connection? In one of my favorite songs, Leonard Cohen wrote, There are heroes in the seaweed. There are children in the morning. They are leaning out for love, and they will lean that way. 
forever. We are the heroes in the seaweed, leaning out for love. I'm glad Heather found it. May you all find it. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry.